this morning. Um, as I mentioned, we have Andy Nacelli here to preach this morning, as this is the final Sunday of Matt's sabbatical. Um, there are a lot of things we could say about Andy, um, just the gifts that God has given him and that he is to the church. Um, he's authored several different books. He's part of some of the, the revisions of the revised uh, NIV study Bible, that team that helped do that. He's a really smart guy. He teaches New Testament and theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Um, he is an elder at his church there, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. Um, but the biggest thing is just that for us, he's a friend. So, um, when I asked if there's any, any superlatives he wanted me to use this morning, he just said, uh, the guy that, you know, used to go there, 2012, 2013, um, which isn't surprising, knowing him, um, he's not wanting attention for any of those other things, uh, but he, when he was going to be in town, said, hey, I'm going to be in town, uh, we'd love to be with you guys, and we said, yes, please. Mm -hmm. Uh, it just happened to work out. He didn't know about Matt's sabbatical. It just happened to work out. Um, this um, was when he would be in town. Um, and uh, some other just really nice coincidences. Uh, the, the thing that he wanted to speak on was Revelation chapter 12, which if you were here before the sabbatical, you know that Matt was working us through the book of Revelation and ended with chapter 11. So this is kind of our transition back into Revelation <laughs> this morning. Um, let's just uh, thank God and thank Andy for coming to be with us this morning. Thank you. Thanks, bro. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, and honestly, we didn't plan it this way. I, was, I looked on the website last night and tried to see what the last sermons were on. Like, no way, Revelation 11. So I'm guessing that uh, Pastor Matt will want to preach on Revelation 12 next anyway to kind of clean up the mess I'm about to make. So <laughs> he's skipping it. We'll see. Hold that judgment. So Revelation 12, I'd like to start by reading through the passage. It's a long, long chapter. I'll read through the chapter, and then, uh, then we'll begin. So Revelation chapter 12, it begins like this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. 
and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, that's not your typical scripture passage, is it? Uh, What I'd like to do now is explain and apply what we just read and also some of Revelation 20 by showing how it it culminates a theme that begins at the very beginning of the Bible. So the Bible is one big story, and this particular theme goes all through the Bible storyline, and it's the theme of the serpent. The serpent. Now, this topic is on my mind because just this summer, I finished drafting a book for, uh, for Crossway, the publisher Crossway. I just submitted it to my editors there. And the title of the book is The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. It's a biblical theology of snakes and dragons. Serious. I should have written this uh, when I was younger, like as a kid, like this is just fantastic. But it's not just kids who love snakes and dragons. Everybody loves snakes and dragons. Well, not everyone loves snakes. Everyone loves dragons. Let me get back to that. Oh, hang with me here. So when, when you think of, of dragon slaying stories, you probably don't think of the Bible first. So what is, what is the classic dragon slaying story in English literature? Uh, okay, if you're classically trained, you're probably right. I'm thinking more, uh, what's another one? Uh, St. George, St. George of the Dragon? So St. George and the Dragon, there are a lot of different variations of that one. But I thought it was the classic one. So what's Beowulf? Beowulf, um, epic old English story. Beowulf slays these monsters. And then he, later he slays the dragon. See right there, okay. Um, the, for a lot of, of, of uh, American and, and British history, the best-selling book other than the Bible was John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you read that one? Fantastic book. Spurgeon read it a hundred times. Uh, it's so good. Now, you remember in that story how there is a, it's an allegory. There's a guy named Christian and he's on this pilgrimage and he encounters Apollyon. So Apollyon is 
uh, in the allegory is Satan as a dragon. So there's another another one. Um, any of you read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia? Mm-hmm. It's so good. Now, there are several serpent figures in that one. Uh, think of the white witch. Jardis is one of the main ones. Uh, there are others, like in the silver chair, the queen of Underland, the lady of the green kirtle. Remember, she turns into a big snake at the end. So that, there's, there's serpent figures all throughout that one. How about... Um, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. So he's got The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Of course, in, in The Hobbit, there's smog. But the, the big serpent figure throughout is Sauron and his ring race. And it's, it's pretty scary stuff. But uh, another one, more recently, you probably wouldn't consider this classic. It, it probably will be uh, Harry Potter. Uh, so it's a seven-book series. Uh, who's the primary serpent figure in that one? Voldemort. Remember, he's from the House of Salazar... Slytherin, whose mascot is a serpent, and there, uh, in the stories, he unleashes a basilisk, which is this monstrous serpent. He speaks the language of snakes. He's got a pet, Nagini, this huge snake. So, I'm just giving you a handful to, to just get your your memory going here, your mind going. A lot of stories feature this epic good versus evil battle, and the evil figure is a serpent whether literally or metaphorically. Now, I'm going to come back to that at the end uh, in a minute to, to, to suggest why that is. Um, why is it that, that so many stories have that arc that seems to be a, an image, a, a, an echo of the Bible's story? Why is that? Uh, so... Be thinking about that. Well, we'll return to that at the end. So I think there's a reason, though, that we love dragon-slaying stories. And the reason is that those stories echo the greatest story, which is true. So here, hang with me here. Uh, I'm going to summarize the Bible briefly from the standpoint of the serpent theme. So you could summarize the message of the Bible in six words. Ready? Kill the dragon, get the girl. <laughs> All right, so let me unpack that. Uh, the main character, the three main characters, you got the serpent, and then you got the girl and the serpent slayer. So the serpent is the, the, the first main character. This is Satan, the villain. Uh, the bad guys who work for the serpent are the serpent's children. The serpent and his children act like either snakes or dragons. Now, I didn't, when I went to dive into this subject to study it, I didn't know this. So this is a really cool discovery. Uh, so serpent is the big category, and then there are two types of serpents. A snake is a type of a serpent, and a dragon is a type of a serpent. And a serpent takes the form of a snake or a dragon depending on what he's trying to accomplish, his strategy. Snakes deceive, dragons devour. You can remember that. Snakes deceive, dragons devour. And if you think of the Bible storyline, when, when Satan first appears, how does he appear? As a snake to deceive. And throughout the Bible storyline, he alternates between this snake that's deceptive and this dragon that's devouring, this snake that is trying to 
not just to see, but tempt and lie and be a clever trickster. Sometimes, though, Satan takes the form of this dragon as a raging monster who is attacking and, and murdering and raging. And by the end of the Bible storyline, the, the guise of the serpent is kind of melted away. He's just a raging monster. He's a dragon. And you see this actually repeated throughout many of the stories in the Bible. Think of um, the Pharisees and the life of Jesus, how they started off as children of the serpent. They started off as snakes. And by the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, they turned into dragons. They're just trying to kill Jesus. Uh, you see that progression in, in the children of the serpent. So that's the first main character, the serpent. The second is the girl. The girl is this, this young, unmarried woman. And this young, unmarried woman symbolizes all of God's people, the church. So the church is Jesus' bride. God's people are like a damsel in distress because the serpent is trying to trick us and to attack us. Now, that, that phrase I mentioned earlier, kill the dragon, get the girl, uh, it's not copyrighted, but I didn't make it up. It's my, my colleague I teach with named Joe Rigney. He, he coined that term. And some people, when they've heard the term, have uh, pushed back and said, I don't think that's the best way to talk about the Bible. But that's a, that sounds like a misogynist saying, you know, it's, it's a, like a cavalier cowboy phrase. Okay, um, I'm, I'm, the way I'm using it is I think it colorfully reflects not just classical literature, but the Bible. So Jesus decisively defeated the dragon at the cross, and he will finally fully defeat the dragon in the future. And here's, here are metaphors the Bible uses for the person Jesus is saving. Uh, listen to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or here's Revelation 21.9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So you've got this bride metaphor that I'm trying to tap into with that phrase, kill the dragon, get the girl. It doesn't capture every nuance. Like, like it doesn't capture the truth that God helps his people fight the serpent. That's true too. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not getting everything. But I think it communicates a prominent theme in a pithy way, and I'm sticking with it. Okay, so... Third main character is the serpent slayer, and that is Jesus. You're with me. You got this. Okay, so here's how the story unfolds is in a few bullet points. So it starts off with bliss. If you open up Genesis 1 and 2, creation of the world, the damsel enjoys this beautiful, damsel, that's Adam and Eve, enjoys this beautiful garden in a pristine world. It's just picture perfect. But then the serpent employs this strategy to deceive, and the serpent deceives Eve. Then as the story develops, the serpent is craftily alternating between being a deceptive serpent and a devouring dragon. Sometimes Satan attempts to deceive God's people with false teaching, for example. Other times, Satan assaults God's people with violent persecution. It's all, all these different strategies, but typically it's the serpent is either deceiving or devouring. Then at the climax of the story, the dragon attempts to devour the hero, but fails. The, the dragon murders Jesus, but merely bruises his heel while Jesus crushes the serpent. And then, for the rest of the story, that's where we are right now, the dragon furiously attempts to devour the damsel. The, the dragon right now is attempting to deceive and devour the church. That's right now. And then, the hero's mission, which we read about in the book of Revelation, is to kill the dragon and get the girl. 
And Jesus will accomplish that mission. The lamb will consummate his kingdom for God's glory by slaying the dragon and saving his bride. It's a beautiful story. And we're going to look at a part of it here in Revelation chapter 20 and see how the story ends. Now, I'm going to be moving quickly here. If I had maybe four or five hours, what I would do is start in Genesis 3 and then trace all kinds of themes of the the serpent's children throughout the Old New Testament and then end here. But don't worry, there are people with kids and I'm targeting about 40 minutes, so we should be all right. Uh, What I'm going to do is share 10 notable truths about the dragon from, from this passage and part of Revelation 20 to help us understand more about this dragon and, and how the, it fits in God's story here. So first observation, the dragon is the ancient serpent. Let me show you that. If you have your Bible open, look at Revelation 12, verse 9. It says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And at the end of verse 10, the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. So I'm counting six labels here that apply to the same evil person. You've got the dragon, and then the ancient serpent. That's alluding to Genesis 3. So the the serpent in Genesis 3 and the dragon in Revelation 12 refer to the same evil person. Another term, it's got the devil. That's the Greek term diabolos or slanderer. And then you've got Satan. It's, it means the adversary. And a fifth term here, deceiver, the deceiver. And then sixth, the accuser of our brothers. So I think this is important just to kind of connect the Bible storyline. The ancient serpent, the dragon, same evil person. Okay, observation two. The dragon is powerful. Look at verse three. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a what? A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. So the dragon is great. It's powerful. And the, the ten horns symbolize great power and ruling authority. This is alluding back to Daniel chapter 7. The seven diadems symbolize that his power extends over the entire earth. I mean, verse 9 says he's the deceiver of what? Of the whole world. So this dragon's powerful. And that's important to emphasize. Sometimes we can talk about our enemy like it's not a, a, a seriously dangerous foe. Like we, we can become overconfident. And that's the danger. And it's also danger to become too scared. So there are two different dangers here, but it's it's important to have a how do I say this? A healthy respect. I don't want to say respect. A healthy uh, fear that this enemy, this this foe, is more powerful than you. You can't take this foe on one on one, okay? Without Jesus, the dragon's powerful. Number three, the dragon plans to devour the Messiah. And you see this in verses 1 to 4, especially toward the end. It's a grotesque picture. It says, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. You imagine like a woman in in a hospital bed with her feet in the straps about to give birth. And the dragon's there just waiting for the baby to come out. For what purpose? So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
it's, it's a grotesque scene, isn't it? It's sickening. So a couple questions here. Who is, who is this male child? This is important. Who is the male child? Now, there's a, there's a, a, a hint here that can help you. Look at the end, or I think the first part of verse 4. It says, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's really important for identifying who the male child is. Can you think of a, of a psalm, a famous psalm, that talks about a rod of iron? Psalm 2, that's exactly right. Psalm 2, and who is it referring to? The Messiah, Jesus himself. Now, it's not just the psalms we have. We have the book of Revelation to confirm this. So if you've been preaching through Revelation, then you remember this from Revelation 2.27. It refers to Jesus ruling with a rod of iron. And it's also in Revelation 19.15. So that's really helpful for this. Okay, we got an anchor here to be confident that this male child refers to Jesus, the Messiah. Now, why would the dragon want to devour the Messiah? And this, this is where it goes back to Genesis 3.15 hugely significant uh, passage of the Bible for just understanding the whole storyline. Genesis 3.15. Let me read it to you. This is uh, God speaking to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the, the snake hears that, and for the rest of the storyline, he is trying to thwart that. He's trying to thwart God's master plan by devouring the Messiah. He hates the seed of the woman. He hates, hates, hates those babies. And the ultimate baby he hates is the Messiah. And, and while the woman in labor here in Revelation, is, in, in Revelation 12, this woman is in labor, the dragon's plan to eat it up, and you think, if I were to draw a picture of this, I, I, I couldn't. It would be so gross and revolting. And that's how you should feel about the dragon. It's exactly how you should feel. The dragon is disgusting. He's evil. He's wicked. Those are the kind of emotions you should have when you think of the dragon. And it's important to remember, this is not the first time the dragon has done something like this, tried to devour a baby. Think about this. Every, if you read through the Bible regularly, when you get to the end of Genesis, and you start the book of Exodus... What do you read about? So, remember Joseph saves his family, his brothers, then the Israelites become more numerous, and then the Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, sees the Israelites becoming so numerous, and then what does he do? He goes after the baby boys, and he decrees that they should be drowned in the Nile River. I don't have time to unpack all this, but what's so fascinating is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is a child of the serpent. He's a serpent figure. He's, he actually wears an erect cobra on his, his head. And, and his nation of Egypt worships the snake. And throughout the, the story of, of, of Moses and the, and the Pharaoh, they've got a rod that turns into a snake, and Moses' rod devour his. And it uses this phrase of devouring, which is the same phrase that comes up in, I think it's Exodus 12 or 13, or 14, I forget the reference, it's around there, it, where uh, there's a poem, a celebratory song about how God delivered the, Egypt, delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians, and it says that God swallowed up the, the Egyptians in the sea. That's the snake imagery. So, so Pharaoh is a serpent figure. He is trying to devour 
the seed of the woman, the, the, the children of the woman. The, the dragon hates babies. And then you get later in the Gospels, here, I think it's Matthew 2, and what is King Herod doing to the babies in Bethlehem? Same thing. And what we just read in Revelation 12 is that story about King Herod in Matthew 2, but in apocalyptic language. So you're, you're familiar with that story. We just read it with stars falling and it's just, you know, different imagery, but it's picturing that same evil story. The dragon was behind Herod's revolting plan. Okay, so that's, that's uh, truth three. The dragon plans to devour the Messiah. That's his plan, but does he accomplish it? Truth number four, the dragon fails to devour the Messiah. So Revelation 12, 4 at the end says, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So it's skipping a lot here, isn't it? Uh, it doesn't have all the stuff in between the birth and the ascension. Uh, so you kind of have to fill in the, the gaps that you know from the rest of the Bible. So we know the dragon tried to defeat the Messiah by murdering him unsuccessfully at his birth and then later on on a cross. But the Messiah rose from the grave. The Messiah ascends to the Father's right hand. He was caught up to God and to his throne. And this is just beautiful irony. You remember the serpent in Genesis 3 deceived Eve under a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And here uh, in the storyline, the new and greater Adam, Jesus, defeats the serpent on a tree, a cross for executing criminals. Jesus reigned from the cross, and the dragon failed. Truth number five, the dragon and his angels get thrown down to earth. You see this in in verses seven through 10. Uh, The dragon was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here's where I I don't have time to give all the reasons for how I interpret it. What I'm going to do is share with you how I handle the passage and give you a few reasons. Uh, Again, next week, uh, Pastor Matt can correct me, but but I'll give you my take. Uh, Here's how I understand this. I could be wrong. Here's what I think it is. Satan used to have access to God in the midst of other angels in God's presence. And can you think of a book of the Old Testament where Satan comes into God's presence in the midst of other angels? And yep, you got it, you got it. So the prologue of the book of Job, Satan does that. And, and he accuses Job of being a hypocrite. You know the story. So I think that this story here is saying that Satan can no longer enter God's presence and directly accuse God's people to God's face like he did with Job. All right? I I think he no longer has that direct access because God's angels threw Satan and his demons down to earth. And when did that happen? This is controversial. Christians take different views. I'm sure as you've been hearing sermons on Revelation, you've heard there are lots of different views. I, I find this persuasive. I think this happened when Jesus, the Son of God, became human, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, and ascended, and and decisively defeated Satan. And that triumph is what this is referring to. And I would go to passages like John 12, 31, Colossians 2, 15 to, to support that. But we can agree on the heading I gave you, the dragon and his angels get thrown down to earth. All right? So that's that's number five. 
Truth number six, the dragon furiously persecutes God's people. A dragon furiously persecutes God's people. And you see this in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. You see in verses 12 through the end of the passage, uh, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And the rest of this paragraph is saying how the serpent is coming down to just demolish the woman, uh, to, to sweep her away with the flood. And you might be thinking, what's going on here? Uh, you have at least two questions about symbols. Who's, who's this woman? And what are the 1,260 days? Well, let me share again how I interpret these symbols, and, and you, can, uh, you can weigh that. And If this was a, like a classroom, I'd go into a lot more detail, but I'm just going to kind of keep moving here. So, Let's talk about the woman. I think the woman symbolizes the people of God. So work with me here. I think the woman initially appears to be only Mary. Like in verses 1 through 5, she's giving birth to the Messiah. Uh, But as apocalyptic literature sometimes does, the passage later explains whom the woman symbolizes later. And you see this in verse 12. Excuse me, it's verse 17. 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So I think that this woman is not just Mary, but the people of God as a whole, the entire Messianic community, the collective seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And one metaphor the Bible uses for the Messianic community, the, the, the Messiah's people, is mother. You can see that in Isaiah 54. It's in Galatians 4. So I understand the woman here to be the people of God. I understand some understand the woman to be only Israel, and that's, that's more, uh, what's called dispensationalism. That's, that's possible reading, uh, but I, uh, I respect that. I, I'm just sharing with you why I'm going there. Now, the 1260 days, that symbolizes, I think, a period of intense suffering for God's people before God delivers them. Okay, an intense period of suffering before God delivers them. And the book of Revelation refers to this period in three ways. It's a 3.5-year period. The first, we have it in our passage, verse, uh, verse 6, 1,260 days. It's also in chapter 11, verse 3. Another way is 42 months, in which an ideal month is 30 days, and that's in Revelation 11, 2 and 13, 5. And then another way is a time, that's one year, and times, that's two years, and half a time, half a year, so three and a half years, that's Revelation 12, verse 14. Also, that's referring back to Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. Okay, I'm going to go into the weeds for like 45 seconds and come right back out, so bear with me here. This is, this, this is fascinating to me. A three and a half year period is exactly how long the Maccabean revolt took before the Jews became an independent nation in 164 BC. And that was a real famous period of time that the Jews would refer to as a time of intense suffering prior to God delivering them. And that's how the Jews began to interpret that time period as as fulfilling what Daniel prophesied. And then the the Jews were suffering intensely under this evil ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was a Seleucid king who blasphemously 
he blasphemously sacrificed pigs on the Jews' altar. And then God delivered them from that. So let me just jump to what I'd say is the theological takeaway of this period of intense suffering and then God delivering his people. Here it is. Christ has already decisively defeated the dragon, but he has not, he has not fully defeated the dragon. That full and final defeat is still future. It's still future. And that's why theologians describe the kingdom of God as already, but not yet. I saw a t-shirt the other day on a pregnant woman. It said, already, but not yet. <laughs> that's, that's good. Uh, I got to get one of those. No, no, we're, my wife's not in here. Okay, okay. Um, so already, but not yet. The kingdom of God, Jesus, when he was on, on the earth, spoke of the kingdom as already being here in his person and teaching, but not yet fully here. Not yet fully here because he hadn't fully consummated his rule. That will happen when he returns. And I found uh, this illustration to, to really help uh, uh, crystallize what I'm talking about here. You guys familiar with, uh, with D-Day? We just celebrated the 75th anniversary uh, two months ago. So you got D-Day, which is when, in World War II, when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy and that's when the, the tide of that war began to turn. And if, if you were able to just look tactically at, all right, how many people are involved? Where are they? How much, uh, how much military stuff do they have to fight this war? The war was basically over. But it wasn't over. Some of the most vicious, deadly fighting that war happened between D-Day and the end of the war, like the Battle of the Bulge. So D-Day is when the Allies decisively won that war, but VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, almost a year later, is when the war officially ended. That was the ending point. That's similar in some ways to Jesus decisively defeating Satan at the cross. But in between that time period and him finally, fully consummating that, that defeat and his rule, there's a period of intense battle going on between that. And Satan's raging because as a Verse 12 says, Satan knows his time is short. So he's raging. And that's where we are right now. The kingdom is already, but not yet. So there's this intense suffering for God's people before God delivers them. So the dragon is furiously persecuting God's people. That's number six. Number seven, truth here in the passage, the dragon cannot destroy God's people. That's so beautiful. Look, you see it in verse 6. Uh, the, the woman has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished. God's going to take care of her. And then verses 14 to 16. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness where she is to be nourished. So let's talk about the wilderness and the great eagle. So these symbols will help us understand what's happening here. The wilderness, I believe, symbolizes a place where God tests and protects and nourishes his people, miraculously nourishes his people. And the wilderness, you know, from reading the Old Testament, it's got to allude to 40 challenging years that Israel spent in the desert after God delivered them from slavery to Egypt. And it's no accident that when the devil tempted Jesus, he had been fasting for 40 days, 
and he was in the wilderness, right? And when Israel was in the wilderness, they entered uh, the promised land. Uh, and during that time, God, before they entered the promised land, God miraculously provided for them with sandals that didn't wear out. He gave them manna and quail. He was, he was miraculously nourishing them while simultaneously testing them and nourishing them. So you've got that background there. So then you read the wilderness in Revelation 12. It's a place where she is to be nourished, verses 6 and 14. It's a place where God tests and nourishes his people. He protects his people from the dragon's fury. The dragon can't destroy God's people. And I think this should encourage God's people who are experiencing persecution. The dragon can't fully destroy you. He can't. God will protect you. And then what about the verse 14, the two wings of the great eagle? What do you do with that? <laughs> well, think back to after God delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt. In Exodus 19, this is what he told the people he just delivered. He said, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then, when God promised to deliver Israel from their exile in Babylon, the second exodus, here's what he told them. You probably know this one. It's from Isaiah 40. He says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. You know that one. Okay. And here, once again, God gives his people the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. I think the God-given eagle's wings symbolize that God protects and delivers his people. It's beautiful. Now, three more truths to share about the dragon, but I'm going to show them to you from Revelation 20. So go ahead and flip over there or scroll over there. Revelation 20. So number eight, the dragon is bound for a thousand years. So Revelation 20 begins like this. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now theologians refer to this thousand-year period as the millennium. And Christians don't all agree on the nature of the millennium. And I'm not even going to talk about that debate right now. Um, you can have fun with that when you get to chapter 20. Yeah. Uh, here's what I want to say. It's far more important that we agree on this. Jesus is coming back to slay the dragon and save his bride. And whatever it means that an angel binds the dragon for a thousand years, we can agree at minimum on this. Who, who seizes and binds Satan in this passage? Look, look again. An angel that, that God sent. Now, think about this. The dragon can't bind God. But God can send an angel to bind Satan. Pretty big power differential there. So, we can agree on this. Whatever it means that an angel binds a dragon for a thousand years, it means that God is more powerful than the dragon. Right? God is more powerful than the dragon. The dragon can't bind God, but God can send an angel to bind Satan. 
Truth number nine. The dragon attempts to deceive the nations. You see this in verses 2 and 3 and 7 through 10. The dragon will be released from his prison in verse 7 and will come out to deceive the nations. That's what he's going to try to do. So remember back in chapter 12, verse 9, it refers to the dragon as the deceiver of the whole world. That's what this dragon attempts to do is to deceive people. He attempts to deceive the nations and destroy God's people. But truth number 10, the dragon is tormented forever in the lake of fire and sulfur. Verses 9 and 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Never again will the dragon, that ancient serpent, accuse or tempt or deceive or persecute God's people. Never again. God's people will be free from that because God will sovereignly and perfectly enforce justice. And it's that justice for which we are now yearning and for which we will forever praise God. Now, that's just a a short summary of how the storyline ends when you trace it through the Scripture. What I'd like to do now is end very quickly by asking the most difficult question of all. It's not how do you interpret the symbols in chapter 12, It's so what? I find that to be the hardest question to answer. So you say, okay, that's a thrilling story. Okay, I live in 2019. How how does this affect how I live this week? It's a really important question to ask. So let let me attempt to ask it by suggesting three ways that you should live in light of that kill the dragon, get the girl storyline. So three suggestions. Number one, Beware the serpent as the deceiving snake and devouring dragon. Beware. So 1 Peter 5 says, be sober, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, different metaphor, it doesn't say dragon, but same concept of devouring. Satan is not your friend. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He, he's hunting you. You are Satan's prey. He sneaks around to find people like you to devour. So, beware. Be on guard. Be alert. Expect him to attack and keep attacking. Don't let your guard down. Don't don't flirt with the the serpent's lies, which can be ear-tickling and sound so good sometimes. Don't flirt with those. Here's an example. Uh, This is for young adults and adults. The, the deceiving snake, Satan as a deceiving snake, might tempt you to indulge in pornography. Now, when this happens, the serpent, the snake, the deceiving snake, doesn't say something like this. Say, you know, I've run a cost-benefit analysis for you about whether you should indulge in pornography. So on the one hand, the benefit is that, you know, it might give you a little thrill, a little buzz, some, some satisfaction, but I, I'm counting at least seven reasons that this could be a significant cost for you. So one, it might send you to hell. Two, it doesn't glorify God with your body. Three, it's a poisonous, fleeting pleasure. Four, it foolishly wastes your life. Five, it betrays your family. Six, it ruins your mind and your conscience. And seven, it participates in sex slavery. So... What do you think is a wiser choice? 
Do you think Satan ever tempts us like that in any, in any, in any area? No, he's, he is the, the master at deceiving you to believe what is not true about God and what is not true about God's world. Satan never tempts in a straightforward, factual way like that. He tempts you to think that you would be happier without God, which is the biggest lie of all. That you would be happier without submitting to God as your gracious master. Don't believe those lies. So be on guard. Beware the serpent as the deceiving snake and devouring dragon. And I love this line. It might help you remember this from The Hobbit. Maybe you remember this line. It's, uh, it goes like this. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. It's one of these little throwaway lines in the book. I'm like, that's great. We live near him. So don't forget that. Beware. That's the first way, uh, first way to live. Second, don't just beware. Fight. Fight the serpent as the deceiving snake and devouring dragon. Fight. James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So go on the offensive. Don't just be defensive. Don't just beware. Fight. Counterattack and, 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 and keep fighting. Go on the offensive. And remember, we don't fight Satan with the sorts of weapons that our countries use to fight military battles. We fight with the armor of God, the spiritual warfare we read about in Ephesians 6. And, and this is important as you, you prepare for this battle. You won't fight the serpent the right way unless you feel about him the right way. You need to feel disgust, a healthy fear, and no allure of, of maybe he's not so bad after all, or maybe he just had a rough childhood. And, <laughs> yes, he's pure evil. You've got to feel that. And, and this is where stories can be helpful. When you, read, um, when you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, how do you feel about, about Jadis, the, uh, the, uh, the White Witch? Or when you read uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, how do you feel about Sauron? Sometimes I'll joke while we're listening to a story or, or watching one of the family, I'll, or I'll say to my wife, so which one are you going for? Like, <laughs> it's obvious. Everyone's going for, the, for one side. Or if, if you're reading um, uh, Harry Potter, how do you feel about Voldemort throughout the story? I mean, that's, those examples are just, just a taste, just a small taste of the way we should feel about our real adversary about Satan, the serpent. We should feel this disgust at his poison and outrage at the injustice and this just deep longing for justice to prevail. Make sure your, your heart is in line with truth as you fight. And then third, final, final way to, to live in light of the storyline. This one might surprise you. Enjoy good serpent slain stories as echoes of the greatest story. Enjoy good serpent slain stories as echoes of the greatest story. So good books, good movies that portray these epic stories between good and evil typically are such good loved stories because they're echoing the one true story, the greatest story of all. So I would encourage you to learn to enjoy these things. I remember when I was, a, I was in seminary at Trinity and one of my pastors asked me, so what fiction are you reading, Andy? I said, fiction? 
I had you know, I had thousands of books that are all theology books. I don't have time for fiction. I said, oh, Andy, you, you need to rethink that. I'm thinking, what? Like, life's too short to read fiction. Uh, and I've, I've totally flipped on that. I'm always reading a fiction book now for this reason. It, it helps me, well, lots of reasons, but a primary reason is it helps me feel rightly about God and his world. It, it gets me into thinking about the good, evil uh, fight that's real. And it, when you enter a pretend world where that's portrayed, it helps you understand the real world better. It's really, it really is helpful. So I'd encourage you to learn to enjoy good books and good movies that do that and learn to see how does this echo the greatest story. And one caution as I, as I suggest this, good stories do not flirt with evil in a way that confuses you about whether good is bad and bad is good. So you know what I'm talking about? Like you could be reading a book or, or watching a film where before you know it, your, your emotions are actually rooting for someone to commit adultery. What's happening there? That's an evil story. So just not all stories are good. So you need to have discernment to know which one should I give my, my time and attention to. Good stories should make you love what God loves and hate what God hates. And the greatest stories do that best. So here's how I'd like to conclude. I'd like to conclude by praying the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. But I'm going to render the final phrase, not deliver us from evil. If you have an ESV, there's a footnote that tells you you can translate that another way. You can say deliver us from the evil one. So that's how I'm gonna, gonna pray this. And you're welcome to pray it with me. Matthew 6 doesn't have that final phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So I'm not missing it, just so you know, just reading Matthew 6. All right, so you can pray with me. And when I say amen, I will turn it over to who's next. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.